On the third Thursday of every month, pastors and church leaders from near and far gather together for a time of friendship, gospel encouragement, and ministry insights in the warehouse at the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. The following audio is from one such third Thursday gathering. I've got CZ that's on deck. Um, you can come on and make ready if you want to, my man. Um, CZ and I have been friends for probably 12 years. Yeah, maybe, maybe even longer. Yeah. And um, just a beloved friend, um, a fellow gospel lover, and uh, just the way that he loves Middle Tennessee, loves pastors, loves families, loves his family, um, and how he appreciates the gospel is infectious. And um, he's going to come and share on soul rest and, and unpack that a little bit for us. He's written a book on it. And uh, it's uh, something that's very, really dear to his heart. So I want to pray for him, pray for us. Really, really thankful for y'all and and y'all's love for Jesus and the church um, and the way that you cherish the gospel and are humble and meek enough to learn from other pastors and ministry leaders. Um, That in and of itself is a a unique gift of God's grace at work in your hearts um, to participate in something like this. Um, so thanks for doing that. You mean a lot to me and, and to one another. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for today, for this morning, for letting us, um, Lord, experience life today physically. Thank you for keeping us alive. Thank you for your grace and new life that you've given us. Lord, thank you for waking us up Christians today. Um, Lord, just deeply appreciate your work in our churches and our lives and ask that you speak through CZ this morning and encourage us through him and allow him to be encouraged as he speaks, Lord, what we hope is from you and believe is from you for us. Um, so just bless this time, I pray, and, um, and let us just have fun, Lord, sitting with CZ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, man, it truly is a joy and an honor to be with you guys, and I'm so thankful for the lives that you have chosen to say yes to and in, in just asking God how to steward the things that he has trusted you with and to advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I'm just more than anything else grateful for the work that you all have committed to not only in pastoral leadership or working for churches, but in neighboring and fixing your eyes on him in order to live in response to who he is and what that means to know him. And so I come today definitely with a posture of synergy and definitely not one of expertise. I heard a quote a long time ago that I've held true to, which is that I'm just a beggar trying to show other beggars where the bread is. I am hungry and thirsty just like you. But I think the reason I was invited today is because I feel like I know where we all can find some food together. And uh, that's the hope in this conversation. Uh, There is so much that I would love to say about the topic that we'll be talking about. And uh, I would love, let me just start out by saying, to continue in conversation uh, after this time. But I'm hoping that, as Jeremy prayed, by the Spirit of God, He would show us what we need to see today from the word and from some of these thoughts and ideas. Uh, Before I start, I I think about this conversation in terms of something that has been very familiar to me over years in time, which is 
needing to get work done on your car. Can I get an amen from anybody else? Anybody else drive junky cars for a long time? Maybe I'm on my own on that one. So I've always had cars that I feel like were just held together by duct tape and hope, right? Like I just, I'm just hoping for the best. But I think about that and I'm like, man, I've had some junky cars, but there's also some really, really nice cars. The thing that's true about every single car is that every car needs maintenance. Doesn't matter what kind of condition it's in, doesn't matter how old it is, the squeaks and the noises, or if it's super pristine, every car needs maintenance. What's interesting about a maintenance process is you bring your car in, and a lot of times you have an idea of what you're going to be getting when you go into the place. You say, I'm going for an oil change, and you give them your keys, and you go in the waiting room. You're sitting there. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. They're going to come back, give you your keys. You're going to leave. But have you ever had those times where you go in for regular maintenance? The car's up on the rack, and the dude comes in, and he's got his hat in his chest like he's a surgeon or something. He's shaking his head. It doesn't look good, Mr. Zachary. I don't And you're just like, man, he's coming to tell me news I was not prepared for, right? I I came in thinking it was just going to be regular maintenance. Now he's telling me there's more work that's necessary. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to take a lot more time. You can't just grab your keys and go. You're going to have to wait and be patient, do some work. Now, at that point, you have a choice. And the choice is either A, say, thank you for telling me, give me my keys. I'm going to ride it until the wheels fall off and just hope for the best. Or you could say, all right, I know it's going to take a little more investment, a little more commitment, more time. Maybe it'll be a little bit slower of a process, process, but I'll know when I drive away from here that the condition of the car will be sound so that it will go for a longer period of time. Now, if I pick the first option, which by the way, I've picked many times, I can take the keys, knowing that there's a problem, and drive it and hope that it gets further than I would expect. But there have also been times, and I am not lying to you, (laughs) where someone tells me there is a problem with the car. I say, thank you very much. I'm not paying that money. Give me the keys. And I straight up had to have people from the place push the car back into the bay because it quit as soon as I started to try to drive away. And they were like, We tried to tell you, dude. And so what I realized about that is sometimes, even when we recognize there are points of awareness that come to our attention, we can go for a certain amount of time where things are okay and it seems like everything is going to work. But then there's other times where we recognize that there are points of awareness that ultimately lead to things happening that are really surprising along our journey, like our car ceases to go. (laughs) And this conversation that we're going to have today is kind of like that. There's no assumption about any one person in this room around where you are in the condition of your soul. But here's the thing. As we talk about these things, we're all going to be up on the rack. We're all here this week at Third Thursday for regular maintenance. Some of us come in with an expectation that we're going to come, check in, give the keys, get what we regular get, and we leave. But maybe something we talk about today will bring a point of awareness. Maybe we'll start to recognize that beeping noise or that ticking noise in our car and we'll go, wait, maybe there's something that I need to stop and pay attention to as we have this conversation. Think about my own story and how that informs this before we even jump in. I lived here in Nashville. I met my bride here. We served here at a church and we started to feel very compelled to go to a place where people weren't really excited about 
the way of Jesus and the gospel. And so we went to join a friend of mine in a church revitalization in a city called Richmond, which is just on the other side of the Bay Bridge from San Francisco in California. And we were super excited about this journey and what we were going to be doing simply to be good neighbors, to get to love our city and to be able to serve our church in ways that would be helpful. We got to do a lot of cool stuff there. We were walking with homeless friends who were looking for places to live. We had folks who were transitioning from prison into civilian life and were trying to figure out how to get resettled, reacclimated. We had some folks, a part of our community, who were a part of the sex trafficking industry, and we were able to help them to find their way out and to find places of employment. It was just really beautiful, purposeful work that we were doing. Only problem was I was about nine months into this work that was very good work and started to feel like there was a fatigue rising that I could not figure out how to quench. I was getting tired And I thought it was like, oh, I just need to get away, get outside of the craziness of my daily life, these conversations that were really wild. See, I lived right next door to the church. So all of you are in your ministry context. Think about that by itself, all right? Wherever you're at right now, you live right next door to the church. On top of that, the type of situations and conversations we were a part of made that a very compelling element for some of our friends who didn't have a place to live or didn't have enough food. So it was not unheard of at three in the morning to get a bang on our screen door. Hey, man, I need a place to stay. I remember one time this guy, Kevin, came to the door at like four in the morning and was like, she's chasing me with a knife, man. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, was that in your seminary classes? I don't know if I could, I don't know if you got that chapter. Maybe they tore that out the back of the book. I'm, I'm, 24 hours a day feeling like I'm on call. And again, it's all good. This is good. How good is it that people would trust and know that we are available and willing? But yet that fatigue wouldn't go away. I'd go away for a weekend. I'd go away for a vacation. I'd come back and it was there. During the same period of time, while we were starting to feel this rising fatigue, my wife and I were super hopeful to have children. So we were excited to find out that we had become pregnant. I remember walking into the house the day when she was going to tell me that we were going to have a baby, and I was filled with excitement and dread and awesome feelings of wonderment and terror. You know, it's like all of it. And uh, all of this stuff was stirring in the midst of me trying to figure out how to continue to sustain in ministry. And then we went to our first doctor appointment only to realize we'd lost the pregnancy. That was devastating. And you realize I'm already starting to feel like I'm hanging on by a thread in all of this good work that I'm doing for God. And now in the middle of doing this good work for God, I experience this loss. So there's disappointment. My bride is super frustrated. And through trepidation, we said we're open to trying again. And we became pregnant. And six months later, we went to the doctor appointment and She didn't look very certain, and this time we realized we carried further into the pregnancy, but only to realize we lost another child. This time we had to go to the emergency room, two in the morning, in a city that was new to us, all alone, and we're there in this painful process. And it's crazy. I remember uh, the next day coming home, my wife was weeping on the couch, and I didn't know what was going on, and I just ran up to her, and I told you our city was crazy. It could have been anything, and 
I just sat down. I said, what happened? And she said, I prayed specifically that this would not happen. And look what God let happen to our lives. And I like to say that there are certain times where theology goes out the window, right? I mean, we're all gospel affectionate people. And I can sit here right now and go, well, Babe, let me tell you, there's nothing we can do to earn the righteousness of Christ. It's not due to our, no. I sat there and I wept with her and I was like, yeah, (laughs) this is terrible. Third piece of that was as we were walking through all of that, felt deathly alone. Wasn't that I wasn't around people. I was in rooms like this all the time. I was walking alongside two brothers who I was serving with, who loved Jesus, loved the gospel. We were doing good work together. But at the times where I would feel this little window of permission to be able to share in vulnerability, these things that I was wrestling with, which by the way, I don't know about you guys, you guys are super spiritual and stuff, but for me, I didn't even know if I was allowed to say this as a pastor, that I'm wrestling and struggling and feeling tired and I'm not really sure how I feel about all these things that are happening. Anytime I would finally get the little window of opportunity to say something, I'd share what I was feeling and they would say to me, well, you're the guy that we would normally talk to when we're in trouble. So we're just going to kind of give you some space and let you figure it out. Man, I felt like I was on an island. And what it boils down to, just that little snippet of my story is my awareness of this. I was doing a lot of good work for God. I just wasn't doing that work with God. It is possible to do good work for God and not do that work with God. I remember reading a quote during that time that is probably way more eloquent and beautifully said than I could ever say. This guy, Soren Kierkegaard, said, it is absolutely unethical when one becomes so busy communicating that he forgets to be what he teaches. You know, so often we in our ministry leadership see and hear of stories of maybe friends or people that we esteem highly having things occur in their lives that bring disappointment and frustration to our hearts because we're going, how could that dude experience, like, how could that happen to him? Man, he preached, just last week, he preached this sermon that was incredible and it changed the way that my wife and I look at marriage only to realize we hear a story about him having a relationship outside of his marriage or stealing money from the church or that he's leading his staff with a heavy hand, anger and domineer. Like, how did it happen to him? It's possible to do work for God, not do work with God. There's a verse in the book of Psalms that I want to share with us. I'll come back to the story. <laughs> but in Psalm 63, it's so crazy how what we're about to read feels like this double entendre that runs through the whole chapter. It's like there's this one thing being said, but as you listen to what I'm saying, you can read it completely differently no matter what season you're in. And it says this, you God are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. See, when I read that, some of us hear that and go, yes, that is the epitome of a pursuit of the Lord, that I would 
moved toward him with desperation as though I was in a dry and weary place and he is my only source of water. What you just read describes my daily pursuit, my intentional leaning in to experience times with God. But if we're honest, some of us hear me read that and you go, that's exactly how I feel. I feel dry. I feel tired. I feel like I lived in a parched land and there is no water. See the two differences? (laughs) One is this active description of our recognition of our pursuit and need for him and we're going for it. And this is describing the way that we do it. But some of us hear that and we go, man, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of the desert with good intentions and there is nothing for myself For my soul, that is like water to satisfy what feels parched and weary. It's possible to do good work for God and not do that work with God. You know, I was thinking about how in my story, that was the case. I I come to this realization and those three things were true and they converged together. And I went to the guys that I was serving with beautiful, faithful men of the Lord. And I said, dude, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't do this any longer. And the reason was really just the three things converging at the same time. Can I be honest with you guys? If it was one of those things, I probably would have just put my head down and kept going. But because it was all three, it was just like it was too much. And I think one of the things that I started to realize is that I was serving with good intentions for God from the wellspring or resource that only came from my own strength. It was like I was genuinely hopeful in the message and the hope of the gospel, but was trying to, in my own strength, deliver and see it sustained in my community and relationships. It was like I was believing, as crazy as it sounds, that God needed me for him to do his work. And what that meant was, if I admit that I have to rest, then it means one of two things. Either I'm lazy or I'm a failure. Some of us have fallen into the trap of believing that false dichotomy, that if I rest, if I admit that I need replenishment, that I need to be aware from whence I am serving to tap into the wellspring of life, if I stop and admit that I need to take a break, I've either admitted that I can't cut it or I have failed. And it's absolutely not true. Isn't it interesting how even when it comes to the Sabbath, which every single one of you could preach so many more messages than I could on this topic, even when it comes to something like the Sabbath, just taking one simple look at it in a passing glance, you see something that's very encouraging. This junk happens every seven days. You know why that's encouraging? Because it's almost like God knew from the very beginning that there needs to be a cyclical reminder for humanity to go, hey, So you can't do this by yourself, right? So I need you to take a day to remember that you are not the great provider, I am. 
See, there's a work you can do with your hands for six days. On the seventh day, I need you to remember that there's a work that can only be done by my hand alone. And so you might go, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But Sabbath, man, it's old school. It's Old Testament, right? Like, I get that we want to honor the Sabbath. It's in the Ten Commandments, number four, Exodus 28. So I get it. But let's just be practical here. We're in a different time. We live in a different era. Sure, I want to honor Sabbath, and I'll figure out a way to do that. I'm still trying to prink and preen and figure out what that looks like in my life. But let me just be real, like Sabbath then versus Sabbath now. And this was the breakthrough. This was the game changer for my life, to be honest. When I experienced that place where I knew I could not continue forward any longer in my own strength, I started to just devour the word, looking for hope in the scriptures to say, all right, I know that I need some kind of rest that I can't find in just taking a break or taking a nap or getting away. There's something that is deficient here that needs some sort of supplementation. And I started at the beginning of the Bible, right? And very quickly in Genesis chapter two, we bump into rest for the first time. And isn't it interesting that in Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, three times there is one phrase that is repeated in just those two verses. You remember the story about how God created everything? Seventh day says that God rested from the work that he had done. It says that phrase three times in two verses. Now, somebody who studies the Bible, went to school for some of this stuff, This might be a very simplistic question, but I was in a place of desperation. I'm going to keep it real. This was my question. That's cool. But why did God have to rest at all? Like, if God is God, he just tells people, hey, look, I made some stuff. Y'all need to rest on the seventh day. I'm just telling you. But it says in the scriptures that he rested. And then in Exodus 31, verse 17, it says something interesting. That God rested and was refreshed. What? So not only did God rest to show us humans what we're supposed to do, but it says that God experienced something from that rest that was so refreshing that it could be refreshing to God. (laughs) Like what could be so refreshing that God himself in the rest would experience that kind of refreshment? Let's go back to what he said in those three phrases, two verses, God stops on the seventh day and he looks back at the work that could only be done by his hand alone. And he says, it is good. It's enough. It's finished. It's all done. And he celebrates in the rest that what he has made, it's a work that can only be done by the hand of God alone. And then he goes on to tell the humans when he's talking to Moses up on the mountain, hey, tell tell them cats, they need to, on the seventh day, stop doing work with their hands to remember that the work is done. Remember, I said that's kind of old school. Well, let's fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, bloody, beaten on a cross for sins that he did not commit, but only he could pay for. So then that means Jesus came to do a work that could only be done by the hand of God alone. And right before he dies, he utters words that are very similar to what was the sentiment in the beginning of the story. It is finished. There is a work that can only be done by him. 
And in the wake of his finished work, there is rest. That's what we know is true in Genesis. The Sabbath is this reminder that he did a work with his hands. We rest remembering his finished work. Well, in the New Testament, it is no less true. Jesus finishes the work on the cross. And what we get in the wake of his finished work is rest for our souls. See, our identity, our worth, And our value are no longer contingent upon what we do, but it is in the finished work of Jesus. And from that work that we live, we move, we have our being. So there's two things that's really exciting about somebody like me who was desperate and dry and parched and longing was, number one, when God looks at me, he no longer sees me in my sin, praise God, He also no longer sees me in my performance, in my striving. He sees me through the finished work of Jesus. That's where I find rest for my soul eternally. (laughs) But you know what else is so cool? Because of that finished work that was done on the cross, my living, my ministry, my doing is no longer lived from a place of my striving to earn my striving to keep. No, my work is now fueled and formed by the reality of that finished work. The work on the cross is from where I find my identity. So my rest comes from him. And it's a trip because you're like, all right, that's cool. I get all that. But this soul rest idea is not something I just came up with. It sounds like a cool phrase. But in Matthew 11, it's a verse that I had said. It's one of those uh, bathroom verses. You know, it's the one that usually is on like a Hobby Lobby poster, right? You put it above the toilet. Maybe not y'all. It says other people, right? So like it's one of them verses that everybody can quote. It says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And what does he say? And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus. Now, why would Jesus use a phrase like rest for your souls? Because the people he were talking to were comprised of two primarily uh, centralized groups. Number one, you got the rule setters. You got all these people who are going, yeah, we'll tell you whether or not you're righteous. We got all the stuff documented here. We got tabs on every single one of y'all cats. We know whether or not you're keeping the Sabbath, doing all the things that are right, and we'll let you know whether or not you're on the path. Then you got all these people who are going, cool, well, I want to be on the path. And they're like, all right, well, you better stay on the path. And so then they started to try to walk on the path. And as they're walking on the path and they mess up and all the religious leaders are like, nah, start back over at the beginning again. Start, do not pass go. Do not collect $200, right? Let's try again next time. And they're administrating all of the righteousness of the people according to their observance of their adherence to the law. Now that's exhausting for both parties when you think about it. The ones who are trying to keep the law are going, man, I just want to be righteous before God. And they're like, yeah, good luck. You can't do that. But try again. And it's exhausting. Then even the rule setters, the ones who are telling people what they need to do. Imagine what is the inner turmoil of this presentation of perfection that has come from pharisaical living. You are doing all the right thing, but you remember how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You remember how he keeps saying that over and over again? 
What he was basically saying was, I get that you're doing this on the outside, but you got to watch what's going on on the inside too. Like you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even think of somebody in the, and they were flabbergasted because before that point, they would say, we are perfect. And Jesus was like, no, yeah, that's cool on the outside, but I don't even want you to sin in your brain. And he's going like, well, the Pharisees are thinking, we can't do that. Nobody could do that. Then on the other side of the coin, you got people who are actually living sinful lives outwardly. And they hear from Jesus these ideas about righteousness. And they're going, yeah, yeah, we can't do that. And that's for sure. You could tell from us. Like, you know we ain't down with that. And the beauty is both groups, the righteous, the unrighteous, those who are far from the idea of pursuing God, those who have vocationally dedicated their lives to serving God, both of those groups come to the resolution, we can't do this. And Jesus goes, yep, it is in me that you will find rest for your soul. I want to stop right here because I know for you guys, so much of what I'm saying is Captain Obvious talking You've dedicated your lives to knowing these scriptures, knowing these ideas, not preaching to you and telling you things that you need to know because you do not know them. Remember that idea of going up on the rack? Some of us are hearing some things and going, man, that's exactly what I've been saying. But if it were me sitting in this chair, I would be able to say, yeah, I've been saying a lot of that stuff to a lot of people. I'm just not sure I was believing it for myself along the way. What I say about my own life is that I was living in inadvertent hypocrisy. I wasn't trying to be disingenuous to other people. It was just that I had gotten so good at being able to do ministry that I didn't even need to think about it. That includes preaching. You know what's terrifying? (laughs) I remember I was in this coffee shop when I was walking through all of these things that I'm sharing with you. And I came to that realization, those three things converging. I go to my wife and I'm like, something needs to change. Went to this coffee shop in Berkeley. I ordered my coffee. I sat at the table and I just started weeping. Like I put my head in my hands and I, I never have done that. It was like on a movie. Like just, I just was there by myself and I was just crying. And it was in that moment that I felt like I heard God saying to my heart, you need rest for your soul. There's two things that I remember about that moment. The first one is I knew that that was true, but I didn't know exactly what that meant for me. And the crazy thing is I probably said that phrase to countless other people over coffee from a sermon, but I knew he was saying, you need rest for your soul. And I knew it was coming from him. This is the second part of it. And it's really quite embarrassing, but it's very real to my story. Not only did I know that it was from God, I will tell you that that was the first time in a very long time that I could say I knew that I had heard from God what I was supposed to do. Now, some of you might go, well, yeah, that's completely reasonable. The problem is I was doing a whole lot of talking on behalf of God in the meantime. I was preaching, I was leading Bible studies, and I had good intentions, and the words that I was saying were absolutely true. The problem was... I was doing work for God and I wasn't doing work with God. And that's what was exhausting. You know, in Psalm 127, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, let's just keep it real. Did I just describe church ministry and church planning? (laughs) Waking up early, going to bed late, building a house, watching over a city. That's what you all do. And here's the thing that's so interesting, that psalm, which is attributed to Solomon, it's a wisdom psalm. It was a psalm of ascent. It was something that they would sing over each other and with each other as they were making their pilgrimage. And as they would sing this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city. Like I think about how many times I did building projects for God, and I'm not even sure whether or not God was a part of any of it. My intentions were to do it for God, but he he never really even told me that I needed to do it. A better example is this. Imagine if there was a house that was being built across the street. You know, you got the studs up and whatever, the frames. And I'm not a super handy guy, but I'm passionate. I get excited about stuff and I want to help. I hear the story about this house. They're giving it away to some people who need a house. Okay, cool, I'm in. So I got my hard hat. I got a hammer bag of nails. I'm ready to work, right? I show up over there, 8 a.m., and I start looking around, and they're building this house. Everybody's working. You got carpenters. You got all, everybody's doing their thing, and I walk in, and nobody tells me what to do, but I'm there. I'm ready to work. I got my hard hat and my hammer and my nails. I got, I'm ready to do stuff. I start looking around, and I'm trying to identify what's going on, but nobody comes to me and tells me what I'm supposed to do, but I have good intentions, I'm going to help these people, and I'm going to help build this house. So I take my hammer and my nails, my hard hat. I pick a wall, and for eight hours, I just start hammering nails into a wall. And I'm working hard. I'm not slacking. It's for real. I'm sweating. I'm going for it. End of the day, I get in my car. I throw my hard hat on the passenger seat. I'm driving home. I'm satisfied because I just worked really hard. But you all know, because you're super smart and way more handy than me, I did a lot of work on that house, but the work that I did on that house really was not the work that was helpful to build that house. What I needed was when I walked in with my good intention to do hard work was the builder of the house to help this builder who wanted to work with what to do. And they would go, all right, man, I see you're ready to work. See that right there? Go put those nails in that wall. And as soon as you're done, come back to me and I'll tell you the next thing to do. See, in that way, it would be helpful. Before, I was just doing some building, but that building was in vain. And I think sometimes in ministry, before we even know it, we realize we're deep into some initiatives and some things that we're doing, good intentions for our city, for our people, for our community, for our church. And then you might recognize that you're starting to feel exhausted and you're thinking, man, God, why are you letting me feel exhausted? And it's almost as though we've chosen to do some of this work and God's going like, yeah, but we never even really talked about it. Like, you just said you were going to go do it. You know where it really hits home? It's the next part. It says, unless the Lord builds, the builder builds in vain. And then it says, unless the Lord watches over the city. You guys get to watch over little cities. Imagine if you are the only one that is responsible for all of the things that happen in your little cities. How many people know church life leads to drama, right? 
because human people are a part of your churches. Unless y'all pass the robots, which sounds very compelling sometimes, right? Because it's messy. And if that were the case where you were the only one as the leader of your little city, maybe a whole church, maybe a little department, and you at the end of the day are the only one who is responsible for every decision that's made and the implications of those decisions solely with focus on you and your attention to detail and never feeling any sort of shared responsibility, that's going to lead to anxiety, depression, You know what happens so often? We have good intentions to watch over our little cities, but we forget that there's a watchman watching over our city. You remember in 1 Peter, I know you guys know this, it talks about how there's qualifications for an elder. It talks about how elders need to be certain composition. They need to live in a certain way. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, talks about how these elders need to be reliant and connected. And then there's this one phrase that is really interesting. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Remember this? When the chief shepherd, you know what I've realized? If if we're the only ones building, if we're the only ones who feel like we're responsible for our little cities, it's like we're acting as though we're the chief shepherd. No, we are under shepherds. There is a chief shepherd. And our sustenance and our direction comes from him. And when we remember this, all of a sudden, the anxiety, stress, and worry that comes from carrying these things on our own starts to dissipate because we realize I've done really hard work. And yes, we should do really hard work, but that work is not sustained on my shoulders alone. There is a God of the universe who cares more about my building, cares more about my little city than I ever could. So Lord, show us what you would have us to do. And then the next verse is, it's in vain you rise up early and you go late to rest. I think about how it's important to be disciplined. Some of us get into seasons where we're like, all right, I got to recapture some time in my day. There's so much stuff to do. So I'm going to wake up at like 3.30, start emailing people, doing stuff, right? And then you get home and you're like, cool, put all the kids to bed. Everybody's good. I'm going to stay up late and I'm going to do some work. If we're only doing that sustained in our own strength, the text tells us the only reward we get is the bread of anxious toil. That just sounds awful. I have a gluten thing, right? So I can't really like eat bread, but I ate bread for a long time. So that's a problem. And the problem is I remember what real bread tastes like. (laughs) I wish I don't remember what real bread tastes like because real bread, when it's fresh baked, coming out of the oven and it's soft and you tear it apart. You take a bite of bread. It's filling. It's satisfying, right? What he says is when we work with our own strength, our own initiative, our own energy driving the way, the only reward that we get is bread that's like eating anxious toil. Like, have you ever had times? Maybe not you guys. You guys are super spiritual and stuff. I'm talking about for other people. Have you ever heard of people who have times? who work really hard at their ministry job, doing good ministry things for God in his name. And you feel like you've spent yourself 
in ministry for God and you lay your head down and you should be satisfied because you spent everything, gave your best effort, only to realize there's not satisfaction and rest when you lay your head down, but it's more anxiety, stress, and worry. This results when we feel like we're building on our own, even in the name of God. If we're the ones who are watching over the city. There's this uh, quote from Eugene Peterson. He's written all kinds of books. And I feel like a lot of what his focus was, was almost like this like prophetic voice to American pastors. Like I feel like that was so much of his focus. And one of the things that he said was, the kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. I've always thought about that quote because it's in moments like this where I'm up on the rack and I feel like God is calling me to remember some things. And I remember that in my humanness, I have this knack and ability to be able to see those things coming, fortify my heart and let that just bounce right off. I also think of it like, you know, back in the day, I remember going to church sometimes and somebody would be preaching. You ever had that time where you're sitting and somebody's talking, you're like, man, I feel like they're talking right to me, right? And then by the time you get to the car, it's like, cool, man. Like, so where are we going to lunch, right? Because the kingdom of self is heavily defended. Like we know how when we see a threat to come to go, nah, I'm not letting that infiltrate my heart. I just want to say that because I think for me, that was the thing that I needed to hear. That there's permission, even for us who are seeking to administrate and lead in ministry, to recognize that maybe we need to stop and find refreshment for ourselves. There's this verse in Isaiah chapter 30 that I've found really fascinating because this is obviously the prophet of God speaking to the people of God, a message that came straight from God. And we all know, contextually, this is a completely different situation, right? They are in this period of time where they have developed this knack as a people, God's people, to find more trust, more uh, solidity, more hope in the things that they could see around them, like the surrounding nations and the economy that could be helped from other people and trusting in the military and the force, right? And the prophet of God is speaking on behalf of God. Again, I'm aware it's a completely different context, but what he says is no different. I'm going to read it and you're going to think, man, that is human beings, even in 2022. Isaiah 30, 15 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and in rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. (laughs) The kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. I think what our temptation is at the points where we realize that we're not living from this place of rest is we kind of do the opposite of what Isaiah tells us that God says to these people. It says, in returning and in rest shall be your salvation. We have this knack as humanists when we go, all right, it's kind of getting tight. I'm feeling drained. I feel anxiety. I feel burned out. I'm going to actually double down (laughs) 
because I feel like I'm going to keep pressing through. It's kind of like when you're trying to drill through rock and it's like, man, the only way forward is forward. So I can't stop. I got to keep pushing. But it says here it's in returning and in rest. Another version, the NIV says in repentance and in rest. I wonder, I know for me there were, but I wonder if there are places in our hearts where maybe part of what is exhausting us is that we have become to worship uh, the ideas that ministry will lead us to inadvertently, maybe, instead of the God that we should be worshiping. Become so enamored with the building project or the forming of this group or this initiative kicking off that it becomes the driver for us, not the God of who we should be talking about in any of those things. Just in returning and in rest. And then the next one, he says, in quietness and in trust, you'll find strength. If there were two words over the last four years that I would say were not very present in our cultural moment, it is quietness and trust. We all got something to say, and we're going to say it. We're going to say it loud to anybody who will listen. And trust, you know, I was thinking about the other day, like when you were a little kid, do you remember like the most trusted people in all of the whole country were these people who wore a suit and a tie at seven o'clock at night, you turn on the TV and it's just like your dad. <laughs> it's like our surrogate dad is on the screen telling us what's going on in our country. Like the news was like, talk about trust issues right now on all sides when it comes to the news, right? So what we're seeing is this call from the prophet of God to go, hey, you need to quiet down for a minute. Stop talking. Just stop talking and listen. And you need to trust that God is your provision. God is your way forward. God is your sustainer. God is your healer. God. But we are unwilling. So the question becomes, how do we turn our face to him so that we might find this respite that we're looking for? So there's just three words that I want to give you. Like I said, there's so many things that I would love to say, and I feel like I've already just talked your heads off, but I feel like these three words have been helpful to me in reestablishing some rhythm and figuring out how to move out of just the functional ministry and the responsibilities that I know how to do and are good things for God to begin to start experiencing connection with this God that I am hopefully introducing other people to. I remember Eugene Peterson also said, how can I lead people beside the quiet, still waters if I'm in perpetual motion? Mother Teresa, another interesting figure, one time said, pray for me that I not loosen my grip on the hand of Jesus, even under the guise of ministry to the poor. What she was saying was, pray that I don't do a bunch of Jesus stuff without Jesus. So the three words that have helped me, and then I'll be finished. First one is intentional. We need to be intentional. Now, for people who are in ministry, who lead and do and administrate, many of you, I know, have established devotional lives and regular reading plans and things that you're doing that is equipping and fulfilling and uh, just dropping stuff in your coffer so that you can offer it to other people. That's cool. But one of the things that I realized was I was even doing some of those things, 
But even in doing them, it was almost like I was just hoping to find some sort of respite from God along the path. It was like, I'm always around Christian people. Like I'm at church talking about Jesus stuff. I'm leading Bible studies. I'm meeting with people over coffee, talking about the Bible. So even though I feel exhausted, I'll find something along the way, right? Like I don't need to like stop. And, no, we need to be intentional. It's like we need to open our hands and cup them in order to go, God, no, 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 I'm here and I want what only you can give me. It's the first one, intentional. Second one is substantial. Now this was a huge hurdle for me because like I said, it wasn't about my inability to do regular things, connecting to God, read the Bible. I had regular times of prayer. Only problem was I wasn't like showing up to them, truly believing that I could meet God there. Like when was the last time you opened the word and you were like, man, I'm here because I believe that I can have an encounter with the living God that will provide what my soul is deficient of. There's a different posture in that. It's not just going through the rhythm, but it's us saying, I want a substantial encounter and I believe I can have it. And then the third one is sustainable. It's intentional, showing up with open hands, going, God, I'm here. Number two, not only am I just here doing it, I believe that I can meet with you here. And then the third one is sustainable. This is the one that we need to really reevaluate. I remember when I was in college, I don't know about you guys, when I was in college, I started following Jesus when I went to college. And when I was in college trying to follow Jesus, I remember I would meet all these other cats who were trying to follow Jesus. And then we would start having these conversations and be like a group of dudes like, yeah, cool. We're trying to follow Jesus too. So look, we're going to read this book. And every day at 6 a.m., we're going to show up and you, you have to read the chapter before you show up. And then, you know, we're going to be there 6 a.m. ready to engage in the conversation. All it took for me was one 6 a.m. where it was just like a little nippy outside, right? Or a little overcast where I would just hit the snooze and be like, man, brothers, I love you. Because <laughs> it wasn't sustainable. I had good intentions and I really did want to meet with God. But when I look at the reality of my schedule, maybe I wasn't forthright enough to go, hey, I'm not sure I could do that every day. And you know what's so crazy? That feels like a super minor thing. But you all know that if you can get into a rhythm where something can be sustainable for the foreseeable future, it becomes an anchor point for your soul. It's a place to return to. It's like tetherball, right? You guys know the game tetherball? You haven't thought about tetherball in a long time, have you? Tether ball is this pole with a rope and a ball, and you would hit the ball around, and you try to get it around. Tether ball is attached to the pole, and the ball can flop around, but it always has this place to come back to. These sustainable rhythms are things that can be anchor points, little check-in places to go, how is my soul? Am I seeking to connect with you? Am I doing work for you, or am I with you in this? So, Again, so many things can be said, but I appreciate the opportunity to share with you guys. I'm honored to be a part of this community of people who are saying yes to the way of Jesus and yes to advancing his kingdom and also fully aware that in and of ourselves, we are deficient unless he breathes on, fills and fuels everything that we're doing. So appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, CZ. Um, man, hearing, hearing and agreeing with so much of what you said, all of what you said, man, um, there was a thought I had is you can intentionally 
um, proactively step into that soul rest or a life circumstance will put you on your back and you'll, you'll be forced to that place. You know, it's like we can intentionally choose the path of humility or find ourselves in humiliation, but God is over it and, and working it. And it's, it's so wise, like, you know, walking through seven months of depression uh, personally and uh, just recently sort of coming out of it um, over the last month, um, like being in that, like being forced into that place where I had to find soul rest. And that's what it was. That was the answer of trying to get out was, was so much what you said there. And so I do encourage y'all to, if you don't feel the need for that soul rest, to proactively lean into that, um, to protect you from being forced on your back um, or face. And um, so, yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing, no, the, the thing that you just said, though, it really, I think there's so many ideas that are popping through my mind. Two things real quick. First one was this. I remember one time, a person who was very dear to me, who was very successful in ministry, had everything going for them, said to me, I need to know what kind of person I am when I'm not paid to be good. So that one's just for free. I'm throw that. You can think about that yourself. The other thing I wanted to say is this. It really has to go with what you were just saying. I like to run. So jogging for me is kind of like this mental freeing kind of thing. And when I first got into it, I was looking out for the people who knew what they were doing when it came to running, right? So there was this one guy, and he's like, already in your mind, if I say, close your eyes and pick the runner, like, it's that guy. Like, lean and just wearing running shoes everywhere, right? Like, that guy, he's just got the tank top. And so I went to him. I said, I want to learn how to run. I'm trying to do a half marathon. And he said, cool. What you need to do is the run-walk method. And as soon as he said walk, I was like, I'm out. (laughs) Because he was like... You know, you really want to do this in a way that's healthy, good for your body. You'll be able to get good times. You need to want. And I said, well, tell me about this. And he's like, well, it's in the name. You run maybe for three minutes. Then you set a timer and then you walk for a minute. And then you run for three minutes and you walk for a minute. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, this is not what I'm trying to do, man. I'm trying to run. The whole point is for me and my pride to be able to start and go and finish he goes, that's cool, you know, whatever, but just try it. I had been running till that point already. I was deep into like the longer run. So I was like, well, I'll try what you say. Of course, you already know how the story's going. By the time I did it, I ran faster and I felt better than I ever had before with this run-walk method. The key to it is this. It's not later on at mile nine or mile 10 or mile 12 that it's hard to do the run walk, man. No, it's really easy then. Like, it's time to walk? Cool. I mean, my legs are rubber. No, it's in the beginning when you go outside and it's 70 degrees and you feel like your body is just like so strong and ready to go and everything is, the conditions are perfect and you take off and you start running you feel strong and then at three minutes you hear the beep and you're like, no, I don't wanna walk now. I feel like I can keep running. It's the discipline to be able to stop and walk when you don't need to that will help you later on sustain when things get harder. That's good. Thank you, man. That's awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much, CZ. You're a blessing, man. And I'm thankful that it finally worked out for you to share with us. It's been in the works for several years. <laughs> you're, a hard, you're a hard man to wrangle. <laughs> uh, man, I hope y'all are encouraged. But uh, thankful for y'all. Uh, consider what you've heard today. Uh, apply it. Think through it. And uh, pace yourselves accordingly um, so that you'll last. Okay?
Let me pray once more for us. Father, thank you so much for CZ, his heart for you, his passion, Lord, for you and sustainability in your work, um, embracing your work in him, in us, um, and through us, Lord, with you, and not merely for you. Lord, help us consider these things deeply. Lord, uh, doing so will add joy and longevity to our lives. I pray a prayer of blessing on each church represented in each marriage, the families, the children, the future children, the neighbors, the future spouses, Lord, of those that are gathered here. Lord, protect them from the evil one. And Lord, I pray that they listen and heed the words of wisdom shared today, that we would not consider ourselves exceptions to this or begin drifting to thinking about others who need to hear this, that we would embrace this. Lord, do a sweet work in our hearts. Can't wait to see you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the audio from a third Thursday gathering of pastors and church leaders visiting the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. To learn more, visit theaxischurch.org.